I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I want to tell you about Doing Justice, a new podcast from Cafe Studios. It's about a prosecutor's role in our justice system and is hosted by former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. Wait, I know him. The show asks if we should allow an elected official to run for re-election while under investigation. It follows a sex worker who was robbed and gets her day in court. Preet explores the key elements of cases from the unique perspective of the prosecutors grappling with urgent moral and legal questions. Subscribe to Doing Justice wherever you're listening now. This is Kathy from Chicago. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, and this week, stories about missing women of color. What happened to a Native American woman who left a bar in Montana and was never seen again? We'll review the new podcast from Gimlet's Connie Walker, Stolen, The Search for Germaine. Plus, an eight-year-old girl in a shelter vanished with the facility's janitor. Her family was let down not only by the justice system, but by the social safety net meant to help them. We'll discuss WAMU's Through the Cracks. Join me to get that done and more is my real-life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and guy who gets frustrated when I don't treat this like a job, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Oh, are we doing a podcast now? <laughs> I thought we were just standing around with the thing recording for a half an hour. Listen, I love talking to my friends. <laughs> it's the water cooler aspect of your job. Jeez. Yeah. We did, for our listeners, just FYI, spend... Maybe like 15 minutes just chatting about shit before we started recording. Kevin yeah. was like, FYI. And I'm like, we don't have anywhere to go. What are you doing? The new Patreon level will be you also get the before show. <laughs> In addition to the after show now, apparently. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, and yes, also a certified pet detective, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. There's some big pet detective cases going on, but I'll tell you about it later. But Laura, can we just talk about we're on uh, Zoom right now and you have a thousand cats in your background. Yeah. This is um, the most Carol Baskin you have ever been on this podcast. Yeah. I just was like, you know what? I'm going to start embracing the Zoom lifestyle. And uh, my son, Will, was like, Mom, you're so stupid. You need a green screen. I was like, I don't care if everything fades out. I have like all these cats. It makes me happy. Yes. And I feel like it's sort of just like it speaks to who I am. 
It really does. And also with us, our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, Kevin, question for you. Yeah. What can I do to make this more comfortable for you as a job? Just, like, not talk? We just, like, come on and start recording immediately? Like, what would No, I just mean, you know, 20 minutes of... (laughs) Ramping up, talking about stuff that you know could actually be in the show. All I know is that I when, think is yeah. When Toby no holds smiling. up, when Toby holds up his little alien ornament. And yeah, puts hey, it in hold front up of your camera. alien, Toby. <laughs> well, they can't really see this at, at no. on podcast land. No, but for someone who doesn't believe in aliens, you sure are committed to the bit, Toby. You really are. You know, I got this at uh, I got this yeah. at the alien garage. That's like a few miles from where Betty and Barney Hill supposedly had their encounter. They did you mean where they did have their encounter. Yeah, but it's not, they're not entirely clear exactly where it happened. Anyway, there's this garage that just sells all these like alien tchotchkes and stuff. And so I bought this, a little green alien. Nice. <laughs> wow. Well, that's appropriate. It's, it's not an actual alien though. It's, it's just a toy. Oh, wow. And so you got the smallest one. <laughs> yeah. The cheapest one. Thanks for clarifying that, Toby. Okay, I thought it was yeah. real. I wasn't sure. I mean, it, it could be like, alarming. It looks like Gumby. And it also looks like a thing you would have gotten. Remember those, um, uh, when we were kids, we'd go to the grocery store and there were those machines. You put a quarter in, you get like a bubble out and there'd be something yeah. inside the bubble. And it was usually super shitty. And then once in a while, you got something like that. Yeah, like an alien. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. We have a lot to talk about tonight. So I think we should just go ahead and start our first review. What do you think? Let's do it. Yeah, why not? Let's get it done. Leading off. I said something's not right. You know, I just had that feeling. Why did you have that feeling? When she doesn't answer her phone and nobody else has heard from her, that's not Jermaine. In 2018, Jermaine Charlotte had a drink in a Missoula, Montana bar with a friend. After midnight, the 23-year-old mother of two walked down the alleyway, turned the corner, and vanished. I honestly thought we'd find her that night. I 100% felt that way. Jermaine was the latest in a long line of indigenous women who have gone missing or met with violence on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border. The question remains, did Jermaine run away? Is she being sex trafficked? Or did something happen with someone she met that night? When I started looking into the issue of missing or murdered indigenous women in the United States, I quickly became focused on Montana. There are so many cases here. Why? What is happening to Indigenous women in Montana? In Gimlet's new podcast, Stolen, The Search for Germain, former missing and murdered host Connie Walker continues her work documenting crimes against Indigenous women. The eight-part series retraces Germain's footsteps, tracks down suspects, and explores how her experiences as a Native American in Montana affects their lives and crimes. Programming note, you can listen to Stolen for free on Spotify, but not on any other podcast platforms right now. We are going to be talking about plot points from the first three episodes of Stolen. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Toby Ball. So when I first heard that Connie Walker left CBC and went to Gimlet to make this podcast, I met her at a conference and she said, yeah, I'm making a true crime podcast for Gimlet. Part of me was like, yay, Connie Walker is getting like a big production company, a big platform. Part of me was also a little bit afraid that what we came to love about Connie Walker's style and her reporting and Missing and Murdered 
would somehow be, I don't know, glossified or trimmed away by like having all this production muscle behind her. I know there are a lot of similarities between indigenous people on both sides of the border, but there are a lot of differences too. I've never been to the Flathead Reservation before. I'm a stranger here. But I bet that whatever Jermaine's story is, it's connected to this land and this place. And I want to make sure I get it right. Do you feel like we are getting the Connie Walker we have come to know and love in this new podcast, Stolen? Yeah, I I wouldn't have noticed the difference. Like, if you didn't identify what the production company was, like, I don't think there's any difference. Like, she's clearly, this is, it's a Connie Walker podcast. Mm. And it's got all those things that, that we like about Connie Walker's podcast. So nothing to fear there. What What do you think that she does that makes her so singular, Toby? I, I was trying to think about this because I was, I was writing notes. It was like, what is it about the podcasts that I, I think are different than even other like excellent podcasts? And I think part of it is that I feel like there's sort of an intimacy that she brings to these stories. Uh, and I was trying to like, why why does it seem that way? And I, I think part of it is is her manner. Hmm. She's just sort of very calm and kind. Well, also, you know, she's there for the story. But there's just a lot more, I think, of her interacting with people in ways that aren't necessarily, they don't really uh, add to like your knowledge of the facts of the story, but they do create an understanding of her and the people that she's talking to. And I think kind of creates this atmosphere where you sort of connect more on a personal or emotional level with the people that she's talking to. And and some of these bit players come, you get more of a sense like like maybe you'd met them briefly Hmm. or whatever. You know, I still, I struggle a little bit to figure out exactly what it is that that makes that so effective. Uh, But I think it's a combination of sort of production and then also her personality. Laura, what do you think? Yeah, I think what it is, is that she really puts her personality and her ethnic background right out there at the start of the podcast. And you know that she is compassionate, but I think also putting her background out in that way brings like a certain credibility to her reporting that you really trust what she's saying and you trust the way that she's out talking to people. I mean, it's Connie when she is out there and you're listening to her talk to people and interview people. She's persistent, but she's not pushy and she's kind. But I think it's just it comes across as somebody that is obviously very qualified to tell the story that she's telling and also somebody that is extremely compassionate and really wants to help shed light on these issues with Indigenous women through her reporting. And that really comes through. Yeah, I think that one of the great things is that she's always, you know, when she puts herself into the stories, this podcast and the old Missing and Murder series, you know, she comes at it as um, a Cree woman. And that becomes part of the story, but it, it doesn't become about her 
right? So it really informs the way that she tells the story. And even in this one, when she's talking about the difference between being Canadian First Nation person and how that is similar but yet different than the experience of Native Americans, that it, it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're following along. You're, you're teaching us like it's in orienting. a really interesting, yeah, yeah, in an interesting way. And the other thing is when she puts herself in, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Madeline Barron when she does her thing. But Madeline Barron, when she says something very kind of soft and like, oh, you know, subtle, you know she's smarter than what she's saying, and then she's like kind of like doing that to bring somebody in. Kind of has also like this emotional intelligence. She's just very honest with people. And so you get a real sense of sort of who she is. She's polite, but she's also smart, and she's also curious. And so you get all that with her. I will say, if anyone is interested in the process that Connie Walker thinks about when doing this, I would highly recommend that you listen to an episode of a podcast called Long Form, which, by the way, is an excellent podcast that talks with journalists and story makers about their process and how they do their work. Connie Walker has an approach to journalism about indigenous people that is, I think, the right approach about journalism, about communities uh, like indigenous people who are marginalized. She calls it story making, not story taking. So there is this very traditional model of journalism where you just fly in, tell your audience what happened, and the audience is supposed to make up their own mind. That's, you know, sometimes appropriate. But when it comes to communities where Everything has just been taken from them over and over and over again, appropriated or even land or resources like the approach to covering a population or community like this is to work with them to tell the story that is the right way to tell it. And I know a lot of like old fashioned editors might be like, no, that's not okay." But it works like it. This is such evidence that it works. Right. Like all the empathy we're talking about is like her going in there with the idea that. She's not alone here. She's with her sources. And I think, Kevin, that even comes across, you know, the main protagonist cop in this story, Guy, Mm -hmm. who would be very easy to cast as the white guy cop from the outside who wasn't able to solve this case. Even her approach with him and the way he comes across feels like story making with him, right? And and he comes off yeah. pretty well. He does. Look, we always, you know, we're not, by the way, the takeaway from that, I guess, is that we all would love to have coffee and pie with Connie Walker. Oh, 100%. Okay. So that's settled. Um, look, we have not had a problem with calling out shitty cops for being shitty cops. I think in this case, though, I think we feel like we've met like a really sincere, thoughtful law enforcement official. And, you know, like if he's in Las Vegas on vacation and he can't sleep because he's still thinking about Jermaine, you know, I think that that says a lot. I mean, if he puts his personal cell phone number on a billboard to get tips about her case, you know, I think that that's great. It shows somebody going the extra mile and it also shows somebody, too, that is fully aware that he is a white law enforcement officer dealing with Native Americans and what that power dynamic is and that like the historical distrust that's. That's he there. Yeah. He gets it. He yeah. gets it. And he, he understands like when he's sitting with people in the room, but he's just trying to tell him, tell them that, no, look, I'm really sincere about wanting to do this. But it's OK that you don't believe me. I understand. It's OK that you don't believe me. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah, that's not the important thing, because a lot of times it's the reverse. I want you to believe that I really care about this, but I don't. If you have a missing or murdered female, how do you not treat that case like you would want somebody to treat your wife, your daughter, or your mother, it just doesn't 
makes sense. Now, so Laura, there were some law enforcement issues around Jermaine's disappearance that we hear about. Uh, and we do hear that it was basically these activists, these nonprofit people who were really on the case before Guy got involved. What do you think of just, I mean, we hear Guy obviously be very charitable talking about his colleagues, but it does seem like there were missing pieces to the beginning of this investigation, right? Yeah, that was absolutely infuriating to listen to. And it's a good thing I got some new hot pink rage walking shoes this week because that was a rage walking moment <laughs> for me. Let me just say, I mean, listening to her family describe she hasn't come home, they can't find her, she's missing, and the police won't go out and do anything. And I'm like, what the f- you know, I had some choice words and then I kept walking. But then to hear that it was actually a nonprofit that had been formed specifically for this purpose. And so that to me felt like, oh, wait a minute. So she's not the first person to go missing. She's not the last person to go missing. And it's such an issue that somebody on the outside actually needs to have an organized, ongoing effort to step in when there are cases like this to help out. To me, that was just like a huge sign of the overall problem. I mean, we still don't know what happened to her. We don't know where she fits into this sort of puzzle of, you know, missing Indigenous women in Montana. But the fact that there was this group that is specifically helping in situations like this, it's clearly a big problem. And it was really freaking maddening to hear that this family just felt like nobody was backing them up. Let's talk about Montana. Toby, (laughs) Connie does ask the question like, she doesn't say it like I would, which is what the fuck is going on in Montana. But there is a sort of extraordinary series of events in Montana and statistics in Montana that point to, you know, as much as Connie has been reporting, remember in the first season of Missing and Murder, she talked about like one stretch of road mm-hmm. or maybe it was the second season where like all this, like it was extraordinary, like statistics yeah. along that one stretch of road, like Montana as a state seems to have these extraordinary statistics. Toby, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, she talks about how 84% of Native women suffer from some form of abuse, you know, physical, uh, emotional, psychological, or sexual. Uh, Half will experience a sexual assault. They have 10 times the chance of other women of being murdered. One of the shocking moments for me was when they're talking about how Native women, I guess girls, when they're getting older, one of the things that they are told about, that they have to be on the lookout for is situations in which they could be kidnapped and sex trafficked. Like that's just like another one of the things that you tell somebody they have to look out for. It is interesting. I think she very efficiently explains. I I think we hear the word sex trafficking a lot, but we don't know what it means, human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And she just very efficiently explains what that means and explains how it works. Kevin, were you surprised to hear that trafficking is such a huge concern in Montana, especially among this native population? Yeah, it's funny Like when you like pick out like Montana. As, as sort of, you know, you kind of like, oh, you know, what's with this state with a low population? All yada, I think yada. about is the University of Montana, snow, fast speed limits, yeah. and like desolate big sky. I mean, that's typically what you think about. Yeah, but I mean, when you think about it, it does make sense that prostitution, either willingly or against their will, that Native American women would be trafficked because when you talk about things like poverty and homelessness and addiction, 
You know, these are all at risk factors and for conference attendees. Apparently, and conference attendees. The but fuck? damn. But also, it just seems like in all these stories that Connie talks about when a woman goes missing, just like how sort of easy it just seemed like that they just like walked out of a bar and vanished. Yeah, it wasn't like you know how you know door was kicked in or whatever. But it just it's 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 so peculiar. But you know when you talk about sex trafficking, the the idea that they're you know around the time she disappears, there was these two Latino guys walking around the reservation scouting Looking out for, for women. women to buy? I it reminded me of Twelve Years a Slave when those slave hunters were there and just had dinner with the guy, and all of a sudden he wakes up and he's sold into slavery. Yeah, it's like the same thing. It's mm-hmm. scary. You know, so weird is that like we just did this thing on Juarez. And it's just, part of it's kind of like the same thing. All these women go missing. But when you drill down, it's like, well, it's the cartels. It's this organized thing. Now, north of the border, all these indigenous women have been going missing. But why? I mean, is there an organization that's doing this? Is it just cultural? People think I can get away with it. It's just so yes. weird. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. Yeah. I think that's the lesson. Men, white men and Native American men realize... Yeah, I can just beat a woman and I can dispose of her body because everybody no gets away care. with it. Yeah. No, yeah. Laura, weren't you so haunted by the description of Connie in that whole sex trafficking series? And we should say, we have listened to the first three episodes of this podcast. And as the time of this episode dropping, what, there will be two available, Kevin? So, But there is this whole explanation about how marketable, quote unquote, Jermaine would be in the sex trafficking market. Thinking in the language of a perpetrator right she's she's very marketable tall slender exotic looking dark hair took care of herself knew how to apply her makeup very marketable we get that which is chilling and stunning but we also get this incredible tiktok of connie doing the shoe leather reporting and retracing Jermaine's steps that night and finding people who saw her what do you think of that scene with the bartender laura That was amazing. We were talking earlier, I can't remember if this was before we started taping or not, about always like recording no matter where you are. And so we lead into this with Connie heading out. Um, You can tell it's nighttime. She's going into bars. We hear like different music in different bars. At one point, there's one bar she goes in where there's this super creepy guy that just like won't stop looking at her. And I I was getting kind of worried for Connie at that point. But then she goes, you know, because I was like, oh, this does not sound good. But she goes into this bar and ends up talking to the bartender, who might be the owner. I, I wasn't quite sure. And he actually saw Jermaine on the night she went missing. And at first you're like, oh, he's not really going to say anything. And you listen to her just gently keep asking him questions. And pretty soon out comes this whole story about how she was there. And oh, guess what? He talked to the police. So, you know, it's like he, a Law and Order episode. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was crazy. Everything. He remembered something from from years ago, but in Two great in great detail. She was on her phone. Yes, she. The what she guy, was yeah. wearing. Like, did you notice anything out of the ordinary about how they were talking? No. She was. She seemed more interested in her phone than the guy that she was with. She seemed more interested in texting back and forth with somebody on her phone. She didn't care about the guy she was with. She was texting somebody else, and so then you're like, well, who is she texting? Who was she focused on? Why was she with this guy? But just the fact that he had that much information and she just happened to 
by going out. It's like when you go out, you, you're you like, okay, you've got to knock on those doors because you never know what you're going to find out. That is a perfect example of why. That's the one where you high five whoever you're with afterwards. True. When they can't see you. Like, oh, I can't believe I got that. Oh, that's not the only time it happens. Toby, yeah. she's also out with Guy driving around. They pull into the alley and she happens to talk to the only person who has seen the video from that night that's like hours long of Jermaine walking around in this alley behind this bar socializing. And she's with Guy and and they're just whatever. And she's just like, wait, you saw the video? Like, don't you feel like it's Connie who makes these connections because she does have the wherewithal and the patience to really like interact with everybody in every scene like i'm so grateful that she includes that in the podcast what did you think of that toby uh yeah it was cool (laughs) i do you know it does make me wonder like how many interactions that you have with people on tape that are fruitless that we don't you know to to get to the point where something sort of seems to serendipitously work out but in fact it's probably because it's one of 40 conversations she had and this one actually like paid off but um it's just another interesting thing about the podcast, which is kind of full of, you know, it's 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 interesting stuff and it's all in kind of different ways, right? Like some of its interactions with people, some of its history, some of its sort of cultural critique a little bit. I mean, she talks about the sexualization of Native women and how the whole Pocahontas thing, you know, that Pocahontas was a girl. Teenager, yeah. She was not a woman. And... uh you know, there's just a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff, and that was one of the pieces. Toby, I Laura mentioned the scene earlier about Connie being in that bar where Jermaine had worked on the reservation. Yep, and she just kind of makes the observation, and I loved it that I left this in the show where she just sort of talks about this man sitting in the bar who's incredibly, you know, he's drunk, he's he's asking intrusive questions. It makes her uncomfortable. And instead of just like ignoring it or whatever, she tells us that this is the environment. This is the scene. This is where Jermaine lived and worked. And this is what she's kind of subjected to. He keeps staring at us. And honestly, it's making me uncomfortable. I can tell he's drunk and he seems kind of pissed off about something. I want to leave before he can say or do anything else. I'm curious as a like as a guy, because this, I think, for probably me and Laura is a little bit more familiar, like being around men that just make us uncomfortable. And I don't think I would have the wherewithal necessarily to include that in a story I was telling, because I feel like for women, it's a common experience. I'm curious as a man, like, what do you think when you hear that scene? And, and how do you feel about Connie including that scene in this larger story? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that she does well is to set up Jermaine's life, right? And this is part of it. It's like, this is the environment that she's around quite a bit. In addition to, you know, talking to people who are in her family. Was it her grandmother that she was talking yeah. to? Yep. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and talking about, you know, where she lived. And I think there's a brief little bit where she talks about how Jermaine, I, I don't know if it's her diary or somewhere, talks about how lonely she is. And she, and Connie does it again when she's, is she walking down an alley maybe? And she said she wasn't scared, but she was definitely sort of on guard. She's walking away from the Orange Street uh, market. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. I, I do think it it gives a sense of the environment that this stuff happened in um, very effectively. Now, Kevin, this is a much larger story about you know the fact that Indigenous women can go missing, that mm-hmm. all these other forces, sex trafficking, poverty. And by the way, I will say one very graceful thing that Connie does is... Um, 
she acknowledges the poverty and the class differences, but she doesn't do that thing where she describes like what someone's house looks like to like put it in focus. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she just she's like tells you it without like she's like that's not important. It's not important to know, for instance, like what kind of furniture Jermaine. Had. You know what I mean? But she does talk about that in all this context. But ultimately, here we are in the story and. If listeners may not have heard it without spoiling too much, it may be someone she knows. It's It looks like it may likely be someone she knows that's involved. So it's both big and small, but one doesn't take away from the other, right? Well, yeah. I mean, what we'll find out in the third episode, which will be out next week, is we'll find out more about who she was with at the bar that night. Yeah. Right? And I think it's really compelling because... It said several times that, you know, the th- person that you want to look at first is the last person that she was with. And there are some really interesting things about what that person has to say happened that night in different parts of their story. And, you know, if she were on her phone with somebody else, how, you know, how does that person react to that? So without getting too much into that, the shortest distance here to the solution may be that it's somebody that she knew like a lot of homicides, right? It may not be this giant conspiracy or this giant systemic taking of indigenous women left and right. However, I still feel like the through line is that if a man feels like a woman is disposable because all of the women before her were disposable, then that's something worth looking at. She's just as much in peril from people she knows, people she doesn't know because of the situation. Right. I mean, the thing can play out. You can hit you know, uh, find, replace, and it could be a white woman in Greenwich Village, it could be a a black woman in South Central LA, it could be a a woman in China or Europe or wherever, right? These dynamics play out between men and women a lot, but part of like what could be driving this if she were killed, which we don't know, but if she is the victim of a homicide, part of it could be that in this part of the world, you know, women have just been vanishing and nothing has been happening about it. So what's the uh, disincentive from right. killing somebody, right? right? Right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Stolen? It's from Spotify Originals and Gimlet. It is available for free to listen to on Spotify. Just FYI, I know there's a whole conversation going around about platforms, what podcast is where. But this podcast is not behind a paywall. It is available to listen to on Spotify. And I think... You know, want to see if you guys think it's worth listening to. So, that's Laura why Alex Bricker, and PJ got all that good money, right? So, well, let's like be happy that Alex did. So, <laughs> Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Stolen from Gimlet and Spotify Originals, starring our friend Connie Walker? This is a big thumbs up. I love that Connie Walker is continuing to investigate these stories about Indigenous women and crimes committed against them, but also just bringing that sort of trademark compassion and empathy and just I, I love her reporting style. And I, you know, I listened to this as I was doing one of my jigsaw puzzles this week. I'm like 80 years old at this point. But it was <laughs> it was just so engaging. And um, there was, you know, moments where you felt great sympathy and moments where you felt great rage, but you came away feeling like you were learning something. So I would say big thumbs up for this. Toby Ball, thumbs up or thumbs down for Stolen from Connie Walker, Spotify Originals and Gimlet.
Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up. I mean, I, I kind of feel like in talking about this, it's a little bit hard just because it's like, and this was great, and this was great, and this was great. Um, you think it's boring just to love everything? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, I mean, it's just it's just hard to, like, I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about. And some of the stuff we've, we've already talked about on some of our other podcasts, it's a continuation of the last ones. I mean, she's she's got this project of looking at the situation of, you know, indigenous women in North America. And she looks at them from different stories. And I think each, what's been interesting is to see how each one has been a little bit different, starting with Missing and Murdered, the first one, which was really, you know, it's like this. It was like a a case of the disappearance of of one woman and, and sort of Connie trying to find out what happened and also contextualizing it. And then finding Cleo, which I, I think it's, you know, I kind of put as one of the, you know, sort of signposts. It's in, a masterpiece. Sort of, it's yeah. sort of the evolution of, yeah. <laughs> of podcasts. I mean, it's 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 one of the real top ones, I think. And, and as I said before, I think it's sort of the most emotionally affecting one that we've listened to. And, and now there's this, and we're, we're three episodes in, and it's great. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. So yeah, I mean, big thumbs up. And if you haven't listened to our earlier ones, I, I hope this inspires you to do so. Kevin Flint. Yeah, Connie Walker is to crimes against indigenous women as Ronan Farrow is to the Me Too movement reporting, right? Or that Leah Satilli is to militia terrorism, right? Maybe someday Connie Walker will do a great podcast about volleyball. (laughs) But in the meantime, she should not stop doing what she's doing. This is her niche, and she brings a lot to it personally and professionally. She's got a very eager, clean almost chronological style. It's good to listen to, very in-depth. And it's, yeah, I mean, if you liked Missing and Murdered, those two uh, those two podcast series, you're going to like this one. Uh, you know, so I guess I'll just say it. Thumbs up. Yeah, no, I agree with all of you. I will say one thing that I disagree with Toby on. To me, this does not sound like the same or continuation of Missing and Murdered. It's better I know just because of money that there are a lot more resources behind this podcast than there were behind Missing and Murder, which I know that Connie just sort of did as a project at the CBC. I hope hope she just got a bigger check. No, she was a a, a TV reporter and she did the podcast sort of on the side on her like own time, like how she could here and there. We've talked to Connie, like we know this. She was hired to do what she does for Spotify Originals and Gimlet. And Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love chapter two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? 
Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. They have, I'm so grateful. They have let her be her. They have let her do what she does. And they have added great editing and incredible sound design to what she does and who she is. So, you know, for people who have never heard Connie Walker's work before, they're hearing it in its most beautiful produced frame. I don't know. I think this podcast is an achievement already. I've only heard a couple of episodes and I cannot wait to hear the rest. Huge thumbs up from me. Business time. Oh, thanks for introducing that Business section, Kevin. Business time. <laughs> you love that music, don't you? I. The funny thing is, folks, I can't actually hear it while it's playing. That's right, because so. I add it after. Don't pull the curtain back too far, Rebecca. We're eating cheese sandwiches right now. We're not recording a podcast. Cheese sandwiches. I'm just pulling the curtain back a little bit. Oh, Kevin's no. scratching his bum. Anyway. I'm not doing that. So we are here in the business section, Kevin. In the business section, we typically yeah. talk about things that uh, are business-oriented. So, Kevin... Yeah. What have we got going on on our Patreon right now? Oh, coming up on Patreon, we've got the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we talking about there? We've got a true crime update. True crime podcast update. About Curtis Flowers. Yeah, He's got a nice settlement from the state of Mississippi and... A lady. He's getting married. Yes. We'll talk more about that. We're also going to talk about how we deal with podcasts from friends and professional acquaintances, about how we choose what we're going to do if... Um, there's people we know. Yeah, so I, I do think it's an interesting conversation. I feel like I've known Connie for a long time. I actually just met the host of the next podcast we're reviewing. You mean you met her once. I met her event, once, but, but I feel like I've known her yeah. for a long time because I've interviewed her a few times. But the host of the podcast we're listening to next, I literally just met like three days before we decided to review her podcast. So could have been awkward. Okay, so that's going to be in the after show. <laughs> uh, there's a new episode of Leave It to Bricker Out. The Case of the Kitten in the Ceiling. Oh. It's a good one. We have a new Married with podcast coming out later this week, and one of the questions has to do with a listener who's trying to develop intimacy after a sexual assault. So it's a really interesting episode. And uh, coming up on These Are Their Stories, which will be out Wednesday, uh, we've got an announcement about a new contest. Details to come up. By the way, if you'd like to learn more about things that we've got coming up and behind-the-scenes stuff and our Tweet of the Week, you want to see that Cat of the Week, you got to sign up for the Crime Writers On newsletter. Just go to crimewriterson.com. You can see right there, just drop in your email address, and uh, every Monday you'll get a reminder of what's in the episode and other cool things. Wait, can I just say something? Yeah. Our newsletter is freaking great like kevin honestly you've made the newsletter like it's a whole new experience there's enough content there that you could use it uh when you're on the turlet you could (laughs) it's enough content like you know it's not one thing you could read the whole thing and you're like that's good so even laura even you've noticed the newsletter like it's very kevin now when our newsletter has always been excellent we've never had a bad newsletter but kevin has added um a little punch of kevinness to it that i think like elevates it a little bit as tan france would say yeah i mean i never got it until recently and i was like (laughs) i was like i want to get the newsletter and i said kevin can you add me to the list and and i'm like hey there's a lot going on here and i'm like it's it's very entertaining i actually i mean how many things do we get in our email inbox that were like delete 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 i'm not all of them all of the things but i'm always like oh what's kevin have to say this week and um, Mm, i'm making a note add Toby. It's the Kevin it's, Flynn show. It's <laughs> very witty. Toby looked a little horrified by that, reading it on the toilet comment, but um, he's back now. 
Toby just took off his jacket that he was wearing for the tufts. You're right, Toby. A little warm over there. Yeah, I'm letting I'm letting cats in and out. It's just like going on. Yeah. Oh my god. So apparently, I have to tell you. Speaking of cats, uh, Ken has informed me that when I tape on these nights, all of the animals line up just outside the door to come in here, and they all just lay on the floor and stare at the door until I close uh-huh. it. <laughs> what you're doing in there, it's a mystery to them, and it's a mystery to us too, Laura Brinker. All right, so Kevin, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Linda Larson and Julie Sutton. Bless Thank you. you. Kevin, you how, my life. how can folks support us on Patreon if they want to get all this extra content and join uh, our newsletter list and all that stuff? How can they find us on Patreon? Well, in case you'll, you missed the first three fucking seconds of the podcast, it's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You won't regret it. Join us on Patreon. Thanks so much. And thus ends the business. Turn section. off that music. Moving on. She liked riding a bikes with her brother. She liked to race her brothers. She used to always win in the races on their bikes. She liked to play big sister. Well, not play. She was the big sister. She was the oldest sibling. In 2014, eight-year-old Relisha Rudd had been missing from a Washington, D.C. family shelter more than two weeks before anyone noticed. Police searched for the shelter's janitor, who was spotted on video buying a shovel and trash bags. Authorities would later find Khalil Tatum and his wife dead, but never located Relisha. First, it was this child has been, is missing. Second, that this child was last seen in February. Third, this murder may be connected to her disappearance. So those were all the things unfolding in real time. An investigation into the city's response to the case concluded the tragic events were not preventable. But the social safety net that should have benefited this family failed them long before they wound up in that shelter. I mean, how can you have a young girl abducted at a shelter that's run by the city and apparently she's taken by an employee of the city who works at this shelter is missing for weeks before people at the school get in, in contact with family services? How does that happen before anyone notices? In WAMU's Through the Cracks, host John Quillen Hill explores how Relisha Rudd's family got to that shelter, how a killer mingled among them, and how the different agencies involved wound up pointing fingers. Was her disappearance unpreventable, or was she just the latest victim of a system that doesn't value poor black children? Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for Through the Cracks, so to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. All right, so Kevin, this is a story that is about one case. Jonquilin Hill, I think, does a great job orienting why she is telling the story of this mm-hmm. case. She went yep. to Howard University in Washington, D.C. She saw all the posters, and she kind of never forgot about it, and it, and it stayed on her mind. But And her mom calls her. Yeah, and it's one of those stories that's like a small story, but also a systemic story. And that's like an interesting story to like try to wrap your head around it and and report, right? Yeah, I think a lot of times when you look at a case like this and you want to cover it, you know, try not to draw parallels with Connie Walker's uh, piece there, but it's, it's very easy to sort of like go forward. Here's what happened, and then let's take this sort of investigation forward. And this one, we're kind of looking backwards, right? It is called Through the Cracks, and that's the focus, and it stays on that. It's not just about her disappearance, and not just about the things leading up to it, but it's also sort of working back from it, um, which is another way of looking at what led up to it, I guess, you know? So I, I think in that way, it's it's um, 
It's a little unique. That's the focus. Instead of it just being about a crime, it ends up being the crime is the way of getting into the examination of the issues. And I have to say, Through the Cracks, a great concept for a podcast that can be about a lot of things. A lot of things, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, I'm always impressed when a, a media outlet comes up with a brand immediate, like Breakdown, for instance, or Uncover, that's like, oh, we could do anything with this. And that is that. Now, Toby, John Pullen makes a, a really clear editorial choice right at the beginning of the podcast to not hold back on who did it and what happened. What do you think of the structure of the podcast from that point of view? Because that's not typical for a true crime podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's definitely, it's a bold choice. Uh, I think it makes sense in this case. I, I don't think you're meant to listen to this as a whodunit, like a lot of podcasts we listen to. I mean, this is really a sort of how did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh, why, why couldn't it have been prevented? So... Knowing what the sort of outcome is, I think kind of allows you to not spend a lot of time thinking about, was it this guy? Was it this guy? Was it this guy? And you can really just focus on the story and the conditions under which the family lives and some of the details about different people who are involved in the family are, are, are pretty harrowing. So yeah, it's one of those things where at first you're like, huh, so <laughs> where are we going now? But I, I think it, I think it's the right choice. Now, Laura, this is a podcast about systems, and we hear a lot about the thing that links a lot of members of this family is trauma. One of the traumas that we hear about that I don't remember, recall ever hearing about on any podcast that we've listened to about people who were living in poverty is the trauma of homelessness and eviction. And I'm curious what you think about that through line, because Jonquilin, like the whole exploration here is to figure out if somebody fell through, what could have happened so they didn't fall through? And the homelessness and eviction thread is just a huge theme here. And I'm curious what you think of the storytelling there and and the picture that was painted uh, of that in Washington, D.C., well, I think it was a pretty horrific picture because I think it it paints the homelessness in Washington, D.C. as something that's a huge problem, but also something that's not really being handled in a way that is actually going to create any sort of systemic change in ending that problem or moving that problem towards moving people out of homelessness. I mean, it seemed like, you know, we don't want to build a playground because we don't want to see it. And we're going to put no, people- they don't want to build a playground because they don't want to have the impression of permanence at a city shelter. Yeah. Which is insane. Right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I mean, it was just and then you have people like living in a hotel for over a year and, you know, you have a shelter that isn't even doing background checks on the employees that work there. And not only not only not doing background checks, but not even keeping track of things that might be nefarious, uh, sketchy, whatever, with their employees that are working there. So nobody wants to accept responsibility for what happened in this case. So I think that this portrait of homelessness was very illuminating in terms of you really get a sense of what needed to be done and, and, and just where the attitude was towards this, like, we really don't want to deal with this, but we're going to just kind of do the bare minimum to kind of do something, but not really, you know? 
Kevin, what do you think about including this story about, you know, how the family ended up in the shelter where this crime took place? Yeah, I mean, uh, tracing how the family got to the shelter in the first place is not something most reporters would look at as significant. It's prologue to a crime, and a lot of reporters would look at it as prologue. But in this case, the prologue is the story, right? It's looking at how this happened. I mean, what was preventable? I don't know what was preventable, but the fact is if... A, that family never got to that shelter, and B, that shelter never hired a convicted felon. This crime wouldn't happen. I mean, I think that's where the meat of the story is. You can look forward and talk about, whoa, this is what the city decided. Hey, the city decided, well, nothing could be done. What a surprise. Yeah. Um, How long was that report they wrote, 12 pages? I, f- I forget. Uh, how I mean, long it wasn't... do you think the script was for the podcast episode? It was no 9-11 commission report. report oh, you all, know, it's... all I could think about was she was like, they produced this like 12-page report, and I'm like, the script for this episode was probably like 50 pages. Yeah. You know? Oh, by the way, you can get all the transcripts online. It was yeah. a good way to review. So, yeah. 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 So, uh, Toby, one of the things that I think is really extraordinary about the podcast is the sourcing. Um, Antonio, who is Relisha's stepdad, is a primary source in this podcast. And Jonquilin spends a lot of time with him telling his life story, talking about his trauma. Turns out he had siblings who were murdered. He also experienced homelessness from the same building where he and Relisha's mom were evicted. Dana had a sister that's named Monica. She's deceased. She died when she was, she was murdered when she was two. One of his little sisters was murdered when she was two. I thought I was there to talk about Relisha. But it turned out that Antonio had already been through more than one trauma. Then I had a brother, Andre. He's deceased. He was murdered, too. What do you think of Antonio as a source in this podcast and the stories that he is telling Jonquilin and, and the way that she's presenting those stories? Uh, I, You know, I, I think he's one of the more compelling people that we've heard from in a while. His story is is so traumatic, it's almost hard to believe what he's been through and you know, the role that he plays in the family and really, you know, trying to protect the kids. And, and, and I, I think he's critical. I mean, I think he's he's critical to the story. I think he's tremendously sympathetic. I mean, he's sort, of, he's sort of the opposite side of this guy, Khalil, right? Who sort of presents himself in a similar way, but towards nefarious ends because he's grooming. Whereas Antonio seems to actually be in a situation of responsibility for his, I guess, his stepkids, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, so anyway, I, I found him tremendously uh, sympathetic character. And it's just like another sort of heartbreaking piece of this, like, sort of seems like unending list of tragedies in his life. No, I agree. And the sort of nonchalance with which he just tells Jonquilin that like his siblings were murdered. And then when she looks up the details, it was like a domestic murder. Like it's so harrowing. And he is um, so hardened to sort of the trauma in his own life that he just is able to just like say it. I I found that to be astonishing. There was a passage in Stolen to the same thing about someone saying, oh, oh my, yeah, my, my, my sister-in-law also went missing. Yeah. She didn't go missing. She was murdered. Like, it's fucking horrible. But just like the, um, you know, the way that you can just say that as if it's something that happened and then you can just talk about another thing. It just really speaks to the level of constant trauma that Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody who's not in a marginalized community who isn't doesn't live in poverty can relate to. 
But it's just presented in such a way that it just, like, I was walking when I listened to it, and I just, like, found myself sucking in air. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, Laura, there is an investigative uh, police, like, journalism aspect of this. We don't get it until episode six. But I'm curious to know what you think about how the podcast kind of frames the police investigation, the reporting around this, because John Quillen does point out that Relisha's case actually got more attention than most little black girls' cases would have. More than 99% of missing persons cases in D.C. are resolved quickly, but not this one. Little girls don't just vanish into thin air. There's always a story behind a disappearance, and Relisha's story was one that was years in the making. So what do you think of this kind of law enforcement journalism lens into like, sort of the outside in looking at this case? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, me personally, I wanted a little bit more of that up front. You know, we didn't get that until episode five. And I understood the lens that the story is being told through in that Relisha's disappearance and what led to her, you know, being gone for what was it, 18 days before anybody reported her missing um, what what contributed to that? And I understand that all of the family background and the homelessness and the poverty and the situation locally contributed to that. But I really, personally, I felt like I would I wanted to back into that after I heard more of the police investigation because we did hear about that police investigation, um, you know, in the most recent episode. And I think when we got into that police investigation part and also the investigation into her disappearance, I felt like the podcast was very sensitive to not portraying her family in a way that would have come across as negative. But I guess I came away feeling... I, you know, I understand the situation they were in, but I was like, how in the world did nobody in this family communicate with each other for 18 days to keep track of where this little girl was? And I feel like there was sort of a resistance to go down that road, but that was, once we got into the investigation, that was really bothering me. And I felt guilty for it bothering me in a way, because I felt like, God, this poor family has been through so much. But at the same time, I was like, 18 days and yeah. nobody knows where the f- she is? But what's the name of the podcast, Laura? Through the Cracks, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think I think John Quillen is pointing to, like we heard like a little bit, we'll hear about this in the next episode. I am also reflexively, because John Quillen has set us up to not like immediately blame the mom because the mom has been burnt by other media. There's a lot of mitigating circumstances here, which we don't know yet, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know them yet because we haven't heard them yet. But I can't help but think that the family support system is going to be one of the cracks, too, that we're going to hear about Relisha falling through, right? Well, perhaps. I mean, I would ho- I would hope so because, look, I, I'm, like, I'm with Laura. I... It's not denouncing the victims. It's not victim blaming. But it is troubling that for 18 days, nobody knew what was going on. And that's not necessarily a poor character trait, but it is problematic. And the fact that Jocelyn kind of, at this point, kind of excuses it. Well, one way to think about it is... It's a really extreme example of something that can happen in a big extended family. One parent is out of town. The other is busy with the other kids. The aunt and the grandmother are doing their thing. Wires get crossed. 
if we're going to spend half of an episode looking at the landlord of the previous apartment and sort of implying, well, he has a role in this too. I mean, family members are supposed to also protect the children. And so the fact that that is not also addressed, or I always say this, yeah. hasn't been addressed candidly yet, I think is, is it's problematic. Do you think it, it will be, though? I think it will I, well, be. Well, I, I have no reason to believe that it wouldn't. I mean, she I said mean other it will than be. there was the opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was the opportunity, and she starts out by saying, look, I know. And right, it, it is, it's way too easy to just like flame the mother because you don't know where your kid is. And I mean, yes, 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 yes. Uh, let's not do that. But yeah, I mean, the family unit is a component of the system that broke down. And let's just not ignore that at all. So I don't think the podcast is going to ignore it. I really don't. Yeah, Only because okay. I've heard her say a bunch of times we're going to be talking about that. Okay. Okay. But I also, I, I it is an interesting question sort of about the order. But if they didn't, you would also say, mm, right? Right. But it's also an interesting question about sort of the order of the episodes. Oh, yeah, sure. I actually do like that we're looking at systemic stuff first. I do. Because I think that if you start with what's happening with Relicious Mom. We heard Antonio, by the way, was working out of town, like when a lot of this stuff happened. Yeah. So he's out of town. He hears from the school that a doctor has been calling the school and saying that Relisha isn't at school because she's with me. So you you can easily put yourself in his head where he's like not really connected to the family physically at the time. And he's thinking like, oh, my stepdaughter went to a doctor. And the doctor is saying she's not in school. That seems legit, right? Mm-hmm. So you can imagine all of that. We can't imagine the mother's point of view because John Quillen tells us up front the mother will not be interviewed for this. Like she tells us that. I think the solution here, and I think it works for me, knowing the mother isn't going to go on record is to do all the things first where people will go on record. The cop, the, you know, the, the housing people, the nonprofit people, the people who work around the shelter stuff and who can explain that. I think the stuff where you can't keep on record is more complicated. <laughs> so I understand the right. impulse to wait. I mean, to me, that's that's what I hear. But I don't disagree with you. Like, it is troubling. Like, Toby, it's a sticky issue, right? You're, you're talking about a population. They have poverty. They have all these other things going on. And there's contextual stuff about they live in a shelter. It's not unrealistic to believe, like, you may have your daughter being with another family for a while because it's better than a shelter. But it also is sticky that it's such a long period of time, right? Yeah, I mean, I've got my my two reactions are one, I wasn't living in DC at the time, but my sense is that part of the reason why this got more press than a lot of similar stories is because it's it's you know it's sort of a morality play that you can play out in the press about this mom dropping the ball with her kid, whether fairly or not. I mean, I guess the other thing I was just thinking about in terms of the order of things and how she hasn't really addressed the mother's culpability or lack of it yet. And, and I guess this is this is true to a lot of stuff we do. But when she's looking at the season, she's not necessarily trying to get in the stuff we want to hear at the time we review it. So if if like some of the most compelling stuff, you know, you want to keep to the end. And maybe that's part of what's compelling is that what she what she's found about this or further complicates things or whatever. So I just kind of in this particular case I just kind of assume that we're going to get to it at some point because it just it seems like lunacy to not address it one way or the other. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like you can try and be as non-judgmental as possible, but it's hard to wrap your head around as a parent 
just like having no clue about where your kid is for 18 days. I mean, it, it is a it is a it's a good period of time. Yeah. One quick point on the on the coverage before everybody in Washington starts patting themselves on the back for like, oh, yeah, we actually covered a black kid, a black kid. Well, imagine for a second that unassuming eight year old black girl was abducted from the suburbs or a project and not a city shelter where there's also a juicy political scandal attached to the story. Let's see if it also gets the same amount. And it wasn't 18 days. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think one of the reasons why the fact that the family angle hasn't been covered yet is because, yes, I have questions about why 18 days went by. But I do also have questions about 18 days at school. And I do have questions about 18 days. Well, it sounds like you get 10 days of unexcused absences. Right. And, and that's when they. And it sounds yeah. like it happened a lot, though. Right. And it sounds like it, it, I mean, there were other opportunities here. And. You know, when we what was the podcast we listened to recently about a boy in London who was murdered? C.J. Davis. Yes. And that was a that's a place with a huge social safety net where there were also cracks that and and failings. Right. And I'm thinking about just sort of like the infrastructure of the social safety net in the U.K. versus the United States and how basically this podcast is exposing that. Let's just say, for argument's sake, and I'm not saying that this is true, but for argument's sake, let's just say that Relisha's mom, like, didn't care, was absent, didn't care. I mean, I'm not, I don't know anything about her. But somebody else should. Like, you know what I mean? And I, I think that that's kind of the larger point here is that there should be a place to land, even if maybe one of these 10 people doesn't do what they're supposed to do. There are nine other people who could. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I think the problem was that they thought Khalil might have been one of those people. Yeah. You know, the incarceration rates for for African-American men are so high that, you know, I I don't think that being an ex-con necessarily carries the same weight that we might we might think it does. I mean, otherwise, you'd have tons and tons of unemployed. um, Well, I mean, you have tons and tons of unemployed people. But just for the sheer percentages, I think that's not necessarily the sort of warning light that I think that you might sort of reflexively think it is. Right. So I think it's it's a fairly common experience. But I think that's also what means, like, just because a guy had spent time in jail, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't you don't trust him. Right. I mean, it's it's just a And John Cullen says that. that she says that, yeah, she says that the unemployability of incarcerated people is another issue. Like, that's also a problem, right? Yeah. I don't know. I, I do feel like there's a lot of angles going on here. What are you going to say, Lara? Yeah, so there's plenty of red flags where people call him, like, Uncle Khalil and, like, the godfather. And, like, he's, like, clearly she was not the only young person that he was taking an interest in. And, you know, I don't know. I think my red flags would have been going up. But it wasn't just one person. I'm surprised nobody else's red flags went up. Shamika was like, did you know he was her godfather? No, he's not her godfather. And I told him to his face, you're not her godfather. Stay away from my daughter. So Shamika, keep Relisha away from this man. Did she listen? No. I can't imagine a scenario, though, where I have no childcare. I'm in poverty. I'm living in a shelter. And somebody's being nice to my kid. And, like, maybe I see only trusting relationships. Like, I, I can't not imagine it. Let me put it that way. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a lot going on here. Yeah. So I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Through the Cracks? It's a new podcast from the public radio station WAMU. By the way, the first narrative investigative project this station has done. 
so far. Uh, Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Through the Cracks? Yeah, I'm going to go with thumbs up with this. I think that this is a case that is really effective at taking one case that is really heart-wrenching and using it to illustrate a much bigger societal issue. You know, there's some things I wish it had been told me personally, my my personal preference, I just wish it had been told in a little bit of a different order. But overall, I don't think that really affects the story and the impact of the podcast. So, you know, I think it's definitely a thumbs up. Toby Ball, what do you think? Yeah, I give it a thumbs up. It's really interesting. It's it's the kind of stuff I, I find interesting to listen to. Again, it's just like you use a case as a entry to examine larger societal forces, uh, I think there's some super compelling voices in this. I also lived in D.C. for a while, so, so some of the issues I'm, I'm pretty familiar with from back then. So, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. I was a little bit worried about somebody having to have a podcast reviewed on the same night as, as one of Connie Walker's. But uh, <laughs> the, she made it through. So I give it a, it's a, it's a, um, a solid thumbs up. Kevin Flynn. I'm also a thumbs up. I think it's a great compliment to the Stolen podcast where we're looking at similar issues here. Um, you know, it's does society value these people? And in you know, in this case it's it's an argument that perhaps it didn't. Uh again, my criticism, it's a qualified criticism because we haven't gotten to the end and perhaps you know, a little more about looking at the family dynamic is is something that's going to be handled in a way that is authentic and uh, important to the audience, right? We say about, you know, do you betray the subject or the audience? Well, we're not here to, you know, make the family feel good. We're here to look at the issue. But even still, I'm still giving it a thumbs up. I think uh, it's a really great uh a really great examination. We'll probably have another through the cracks in uh, in the near future. Yeah, I really love this podcast. I'll tell you, I think John Kalina Hill is a star. I'm sorry. Like, she's never hosted a podcast before, a narrative podcast. She's a talk show producer on 1A. I think she used to work at a TV station as a producer. I think the writing in this podcast is so strong. You know, just the expository writing. I don't think that a lot of our listeners understand how hard it is to do expository writing in a narrative show where you are the voice for most of it, especially in a pandemic where you're not able to get so much field tape. I just found so many things about this podcast so strong. I love the angle. I love the point of view. I love the fact that they're they're taking this story and using it to tackle things like housing issues and city politics and the optics of homelessness, like all the things that other podcasts just kind of ignore or gloss over or go over quickly. I think it's a very, very, very... Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wafer helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. 
You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Smart point of view for a show like this. My only tiny quibble about this, and, you know, this is a resource issue. I know I work in public radio. I wish the music package were a little bit more dynamic. That's just my only complaint. In every other way, this thing Somebody's is- Somebody's running down the hallway, WMAU right, AMU right Listen, now. Like, I know, you got to like buy packages, it's a lot, or resource packages, it's a whole thing. Uh, but I think the podcast is really, really strong. So big thumbs up for me for Through the Cracks. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. The week. Police in Tulsa, Oklahoma, captured a burglary suspect red-handed and red-mouthed. The owner discovered a front window had been opened and believed the intruder left once it was clear someone else was home. Nothing was taken, but cops found a bag of Cheetos and a water bottle by the window. Outside the house, they bumped into Sharon Carr, who had a mouthful of that flaming orange Cheetos residue. Mm. These crack investigators put two and two together and arrested Carr for first-degree burglary. Authorities did not provide a motive for the break-in or an explanation of why the suspect brought a snack. One thing's for sure, eating a bag of Cheetos makes fingerprinting a whole lot easier. You don't even need ink. So, panel, do me a favor. Come up with a new marketing slogan for Cheetos, the new food for criminals on the go. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Uh, How about got sticky fingers? Don't forget to lick and swallow. (laughs) Toby Ball, what do you think? What's a good new marketing slogan for Cheetos that perhaps isn't as dirty as Laura Bricker's? Is that really for criminals, Laura? (laughs) (laughs) Shoplifters, Toby. Shoplifters. What do you think, Toby? Uh, wait, what was this question again? <laughs> a new marketing slogan for Cheetos, the new food for criminals on the go. Oh, I was thinking more of the cop angle, like cheese dust for prints with Cheetos. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Steal all you want. We'll make more. Oh, perfect. All right. I think it's time to wrap up. But before we do that, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> well, clearly, since I'm sitting here with like 5,000 cats around me, we know it's a cat week. So I have to give a shout out to our favorite podcaster friend, Josh Baker. Uh, host of I'm Not a Monster. Yes, who I identified as a fellow cat person while we were listening, and he was doing a Zoom call in, in one of his last episodes, and his cat toys were in the way. So I, I you know, when he, he listened, I found out, in fact, he is a crazy cat person. Um, so Josh has a black cat named Juno, and uh-huh. we've been having a back and forth about cats this week on Twitter. And so I let Josh know it's okay Totally acceptable to play hide and seek with your cat because I do it all the time. Apparently yeah. he does. I'm sure Toby yeah. Ball plays hide and seek with his cats. I yeah. actually, I don't. Toby, don't lie. It's okay if you do, <laughs> Toby. I'm, I'm normalizing. I would, I, would happily, I would happily admit to it, but I, I just well, I don't. I'm just telling you I'm totally normalizing that behavior. So, Josh, okay. I, I love your cat, love, and um, Juno looks like a very nice cat. I have something to say about Josh that I will say in the after show. I'm going to leave it there. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter to pitch their pets to be Cat of the Week. It doesn't have to be a cat, by the way. And there's lots of other ways to pitch it. You can send us an email at crimewriterson at gmail.com or go to our Facebook group, 
But if they want to do it on Twitter, Lara, how can they find you there? They can find me at Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball folks want to reach out to you and see a picture of your Tufts jacket or perhaps your little gummy alien that you like to put up to the camera while recording this podcast. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter and say... Hey, Kevin. How can they find you? Uh, I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Lots of photos of dogs and hot water bottles wearing tweed jackets. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing, award-winning, fan-favorite Facebook discussion group at the Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Just look it up. Support this show on Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you will get the Crime Writers on After Show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this fine podcast is the very fine Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where Kevin spends hours searching Apple podcasts for shows that are only on Spotify. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Laura, can I just tell you something? What? Today I got to teach somebody a euphemism I learned from you. (laughs) What was that? See you next Tuesday. <laughs> Which I literally somehow completely missed in my life before meeting you when you referred to somebody as a see you next Tuesday. Sorry, because you just call him a <laughs> No. You didn't know I don't euphemism. Use, that's a bad word. I say see you next Tuesday. <laughs> see you next Tuesday. It's like in the South and they say, oh, bless you. Now, listen, yeah. I, I do love those C words so much. I just call people D like all the time. I'm like, oh, that was kind of Kevin, I always forget that it's objectionable to people. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.